0: Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly.
1: The Nature Lab is in this funny kind of a space, right? It it reads a little bit like a natural history museum. So we have representatives from uh, all of the kingdoms of life in our collections. It's really about the exploration and that the natural world doesn't just belong to science, it belongs to everyone.
2: Imagine what it would be like to go without buying new clothes.
0: So in 2017, I, I got a striped shirt <laughs> that was like, I said like this is my last new thing I'm ever gonna get.
3: It's been noted that political pundits and commentators and comics have been a lot tougher on you than they've been on your opponent. <laughs> that has got to sting on a personal level. How do you deal with that?
4: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly, I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We begin tonight with a look inside the Rhode Island
3: School of Design, or RISD, as it's affectionately known. The college was founded by a
4: small group of women 145 years ago. Driven by a desire back then to support Rhode Island's thriving textile and jewelry industry, classes included freehand drawing, painting and design. Today RISD also offers filmmaking, industrial design, and glassworking. As part of our continuing series, Window on Rhode Island, we visit an unusual part of the college where for the past 85 years, students can find owls, skeletons, and mysteries only seen by microscope.
1: Welcome to the Edna W. Lawrence Nature Lab at the Rhode Island School of Design. My name is Jen Bissonnette and I'm the interim director of the lab. So the building that we're in right now was RISD back in 1877. So this beautiful brick building on Waterman Avenue was the entirety of the Rhode Island School of Design. And in 1937, this became the studio space for one of the professors here, Edna Lawrence, hence the name of the lab. She taught nature drawing in this classroom, and her thinking was that if ever you were at a loss for what to do with one of your projects, that nature could serve as endless inspiration in terms of color and form and pattern and structure. Edna Lawrence, she definitely marched to the beat of her own drummer, thankfully. And there's stories that she actually, at one point, stowed away on a barge. She was so eager to get to these other countries that she found any way that she could, as a woman, to like book her passage to get to these incredible destinations. When Edna left, there were about 20,000 specimens in the collection, and now we say there's somewhere between 90 and 100,000 specimens. The Nature Lab is in this funny kind of a space, right? It it reads a little bit like a natural history museum, except it is a little bit more like a lending library. Most of the things in this collection don't have what we call a red dot on them. If it's a red dot, you can't check it out, like my friend the bear here can't be checked out. But other things you can check out just like you would a library book. Students take the specimens, they take them back to their dorm rooms or their studio, um, and they're able to really explore them and apply them into their projects in whatever way they want to.
5: Hello, I'm Benedict Gagliardi. I'm the staff biologist and collections manager at the RISD Nature Lab. In addition to all the preserved and dried specimens that we have, which is the majority of what we have here, there's been a long history of having live animals as well. To my left here is our our resident corn snake. We do occasionally get um, found escaped pets and things like that from various dorms on campus. Recently we got a small snake, the same type of snake, a corn snake, um, and a a plumber on campus walked into the lab with it in a cardboard box and said, I found this escaped in one of the dorms and thought you were the the people to deal with it.
1: So one of the interesting creatures we have here at the Nature Lab is our axolotl gulliver. They're actually um, critically endangered in their natural habitat, which is in Mexico City. It's just one lake in Mexico City where they're found naturally high. But they're very, very widespread globally because they're used in labs for a number of different purposes. One of which is to study limb regeneration. So these guys can actually lose an arm or leg and grow it back again. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. I'll see if I can grow an axolotl. And basically we wound up with 24 full grown axolotls at the end. So we had a little bit of a, an axolotl overabundance which we, we found them all really good homes. So let's head over to the bone room. So here we are in the bone room and um, this is obviously a collection of bones, internal skeletons and exoskeletons. You know one of the things that I find exciting about this collection is it probably is the space that highlights most what we're trying to do in terms of biomimicry. Biomimicry is looking to the natural world for design solutions. So thinking about the 3.8 billion years of evolution that life has been on this planet, there are a lot of pressures that have been solved by organisms over time that we as designers can look to for inspiration of how to solve some of the design problems that, that we're facing. So welcome to the imaging lab. When Edna Lawrence left in 1977, the one thing that she said when she was going out the door was there'd be a whole new array of things to explore if we could see them at different scales. So, for example, using the high-speed video camera, there's some images on the screen back there that show how a dragonfly's wing, when it's raining, the water falls on the wing, beads up, and rolls right off of the wing. So then students came over and used the scanning electron microscope to see what those microstructures of the wing are that allow it to have that hydrophobic surface. So the collection is always changing. Students will send things from their travels as well. And we even sometimes get mystery boxes. So that's always a, a fun opportunity to, to, to know that the students are thinking of us, but also potentially to add to the collection. So the collection is always growing.
3: When it comes to trends, fashion often seems cyclical. That's especially true for our next story, which takes a look at how millennials and Gen Z have embraced thrift shopping. For some, it's more than just a fashion statement. It's an environmental movement aimed at reducing reliance on fast, cheap manufacturing. According to the EPA, Americans generated 13 million tons of clothing and footwear waste in 2018. This report is part of our continuing Green Seeker series. Producer Isabella Jabilian first brought us this story last June.
2: Black Friday deals. Mm-hmm. We've got the classic black. A revolving door of trends. Don't you just love it? Love what? Tiffany's. Shopping has been immortalized as a great American pastime. You work on commission, right? Uh, yes. Big mistake. Big mistake. Huge. I have to go shopping now. But imagine what it would be like to go without buying new clothes.
0: So in 2017, I I got a striped shirt (laughs) that was like, I said like, this is my last new thing I'm ever gonna get.
2: That was the goal for Hanre Yan, a furniture design student at Rhode Island School of Design. He went nearly two years without buying a single new item of clothing. What did you do instead?
0: One like buying used, so going through thrift stores, finding things, and if you also like, one, not like consuming clothes in the same way, so like, not being like, oh, like, thinking of, like, this would be so much fun to buy, but more being like, oh, Uh, I need a a pair of pants. It's more based on like need rather than want. So buying less and getting less.
2: He also learned how to sew his own clothes, darn socks, and make his own repairs.
0: Not really all that much going on in my brain. (laughs) Just kind of a lot of doing and letting, kind of letting my hands just do the work that they need to do. I'm a woodworker and so like a lot of my work clothes, like my laps are kind of like a bench. And so I tend to wear out this area pretty fast. So putting in panels here and to repair that. So pants, I think you can see in the pocket here, like originally there's no bottom in the pockets.
2: Jan says his new approach to shopping began when he saw how clothes were made and how it affects the environment.
0: Huge amounts of water are used to like produce a single yard of fabric or especially in dyes and processing and agriculture too, like cotton is a Pretty like water hungry plant.
2: And he says not too many people know that polyester comes from drilling oil and synthetics shed.
0: Fabrics make fuzz, it's the lint that comes out in your dryer, and from synthetic fabrics, that's microplastics.
2: One study found that a polyester garment can cast off more than 1900 fibers in a single wash, which make their way through sewers and into waterways.
0: It's a huge source of microplastics in the ocean is synthetic fabrics, which is having a huge effect on ecosystems.
2: And Jan really reached a tipping point after seeing reports about the destructive impacts of making fast, cheap clothes.
6: There has been another horrific incident at a garment factory in Bangladesh. An eight-story building collapsed today, killing at least 145 people.
7: It was pure chaos. During morning rush hour, it simply collapsed.
2: In Bangladesh, environmental and labor laws are frequently ignored in the $1 billion export leather industry. Wastewater with harmful chemicals is dumped into neighborhood streams. This water is actually dyed blue because of the process. And workers process skins without protective gear, exposing them to known cancer-causing agents like chromium. And child workers are frequently seen operating heavy machinery. Fast fashion also causes problems long after it's used. Adam Minter is a journalist and expert on the global recycling industry.
8: I mean, one of the things that's happened over the last 25 years, really, is that garments have become more difficult to recycle. You have manufacturers of textiles and apparel um, creating what are called poly blends. So cotton and polyester blended together. You know, that's a problem if you're a clothing recycler because uh, uh, cotton has properties, polyester has properties. And once you mix them, it's very, very difficult to separate them. And that's where you start seeing large amounts of textile waste.
2: And Yon isn't the only one opting out of this process. Thrifting is um, is a
8: huge trend right now in the global apparel industry, and it's not just thrifting at thrift stores, of course, but it's also thrifting online because of the development of you know of apps, um, the Poshmarks, the Threadups, um, you know, various other apps. eBay, um, people are able to post for sale their old garments straight out of their closet
2: um and and
8: they're purchased that
2: way
6: something and we love it we'll wear it a couple times and then we'll sell it
2: 24 year old jacqueline jutris and 27 year old olivia garretts use depop a resale app that's a favorite among gen z a lot of people selling
6: clothing online starts with like the closet clean out like Mm -hmm. for sure that's where it starts and like you give a bag of your clothes to your friends to go through but then like as you get older you start to have like these pieces that maybe you don't wear anymore but are actually like worth something you can put a towel over it and then just iron it quick quick Jutris recently made her 700th sale on the platform i know people who will you know use apps like that to list some of their clothes and then whatever they make they basically immediately turn around and are purchasing new clothes from the app so again it just like all stays up it's a little economy of its own absolutely Mm -hmm. it's that's exactly what it is and it's again it's very sustainable and that you know It's all being purchased secondhand.
2: She and her friends found so much success online that they took their business to Rhode Island's sidewalks. It's hot out here. They might shrink when you get home. It's a group of five of
6: us. um, And we all go thrifting. We store the clothing in our apartments. um, And then we either pop up in our driveway or at a local business. Um, We bring all of our racks, all of our own hangers, tables, everything. everything is tagged, (laughs) we make our own tags. We like to call ourselves, um, it's in our Instagram bio, it's a traveling thrift shop coming to a sidewalk near you. They call themselves pop-up, PVD. My dad is like a carpenter, a career carpenter. He can't believe that we want to wear like Dickies and Carhartt pants. Like he's like, what are you talking about? Like (laughs) these are my work pants. And I think they're cool because they're like stained up. Thanks for coming.
2: On this day at URI, the group sells about 250 pieces, but replenishing their stock has gotten more costly as thrifting has become more popular. There's
6: definitely been overall price increases to the point where like, You know, you go to pick up a top that a few years ago would have been like a super affordable $6.99 is
2: now like a $12 to $13.99. One place they go for deals is the Goodwill Outlet in Hamden, Connecticut. They call it The Bins. Here, they sell by the pound, and the more you buy, the cheaper it is. Every half hour or so, new bins roll out onto the floor. It's serious business for their main clientele, pickers people who buy in bulk and resell. Tamira Matthews, the store manager, runs the show here. There should be
1: no hands on the tables until the rotation is complete.
2: Everyone has to wait for her signal before they can compete for the best stuff. And then, the free-for-all starts. All set? Some pickers specialize in denim, others vintage t-shirts. Some supply local thrift shops. Others spend months of the year here in Hamden, stocking up before traveling internationally to sell their finds. You can tell who's who. Those exporting to Africa and South America only choose warm weather clothes, like t-shirts and flip-flops. The stuff they leave behind heads through the doors to Goodwill's Recycling Center. Specialty buyers purchase in bulk. One will buy hats, Another, wires to be stripped of their copper. There's even a stuffed animal buyer who shaves teddy bears of their dirty fur and sets them up for resale in arcade claw machines. The leftover clothes are tipped onto a conveyor belt, compressed into thousand-pound bales, and then stacked. They might be shredded and used to stuff cushions, cut into rags, or get exported abroad. It's just a small slice of a global secondhand market, one that Adam Minter says young Americans are increasingly participating in.
8: There's no question there's a generational shift. and, and there's all kinds of consumer survey data showing that younger consumers, uh, Gen Z, uh, starting with Gen Z primarily, are open to this idea of use and reuse.
2: That's a big change from the stigma of the past.
8: My grandmother uh, uh, you know, was a depression baby. Um, she would shop at Goodwill, even when she had enough in her pocket. Um, But, you know, when I would tell people as I was growing up, I was going to Goodwill with my grandmother, you could sort of see the side-eyes glance. That's a place where poor people shop. Poor people go to the thrift shop.
2: Is this newfound interest or recent uptick in thrifting, is it actually making a dent at all in terms of consumption of new things in America?
8: I don't think that it is making much of a dent in the consumption of new things. What people want when they go shopping um, is they want to see that there's, you know, 10 of that blue blouse in various sizes that I can try on. Um, It's fun to go to the thrift shop and uh, see only one and maybe you get lucky and it fits you. But you know, it's not what. Most people ultimately are looking for,
2: but thrift stores aren't the only option anymore. Minter says big brands like Patagonia and superstores like Walmart have begun offering secondhand options on their websites.
8: This is part of you know a massive consumer shift um, that's not necessarily going to happen overnight. But I do think we are seeing a, a change where you are going to have secondhand used clothing as a bigger part of the overall apparel retail chain.
2: And I can imagine then that incentivizes manufacturers or brands to make things that are made to last because they can profit from it lasting longer.
8: Well that's what's so exciting about this you know once these brands recognize that people are buying and selling and interested in buying and selling their used garments um, they not only want to get involved but they want to figure out a way that they can they can monetize that value better. Ultimately, it's good for the businesses, but it's ultimately good for the environment because we want those more durable clothes. The longer the clothes last, the less impact they have on the environment.
2: Back at RISD, Hanre Yan continues to sew and thrift. But after nearly two years, his no new clothes streak came to an end.
0: I think I broke it for dress socks, actually. <laughs> so I have to get some new dress socks, but yeah. so just shy, like about a year and three quarter.
2: And socks weren't the only challenge.
0: Underwear, I, that was one of the things that did end the buying new clothes thing, was getting new underwear. I did an ex, a couple experiments with buying old t-shirts and sewing new underwear, but I never quite got the hand of it. And like so underwear, especially with things like elastic, which is really tricky to sew right for me. And I think I just need a little more time and practice so
2: i don't think anyone blames me for that one (laughs) yeah and for those of us who prefer not to pick up a needle and thread adam minter has some suggestions what's your short take on what's the most responsible way to be a consumer of clothes the
8: most responsible way to be a consumer of clothes is buy secondhand but let's all recognize that sooner or later we're going to want to buy new stuff don't feel bad about that but when you buy new stuff buy quality stuff that in your mind uh, can be handed down to someone else's kid or uh, donated to the Goodwill or sold on eBay. By durability, stuff that can be reused that can feed that secondhand economy. A
0: little dirty in some spots, but I think I may have just darned one of these sleeves.
2: It's a concept that Jan is is trying to warm up to.
0: So I'm definitely not so strict anymore. Every once in a while, if I need something and I can't make it or don't have the time to make it, and can't find it and fit it and repair it, then I'll go and get something new. So it's kind of like getting something new is the last resort if all my other things don't work out.
4: The fight against textile waste continues in New England. In November, the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection banned the disposal of old clothing. Residents are now required to donate or recycle them. And finally, we here at Rhode Island PBS have some very exciting news to share. Our colleague and friend Pamela Watts was just honored by the New England chapter of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, winning a Silver Circle Award. The Silver Circle Award recognizes an elite group of broadcasters who have made significant contributions to television for more than 25 years guests at the award ceremony were treated to a video showing Pamela's career highlights, including some serious and not so serious moments. Tonight, we'd like to share it with you.
3: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts.
7: Pamela Watts, a veteran journalist and fixture on southern New England television. She's a beloved hometown favorite as Rhode Island has clam cakes and stuffed cohogs. Pamela grew up in Rhode Island, went to college there, and has always called it home. Even early on, she had the instinct to spot a newsmaker. Rhode Islanders first heard Pamela on the University of Rhode Island's radio station. Then, she was hired by local radio, starting professionally at age 19. In 1983, she made her debut in television news at the Providence Journal's groundbreaking local cable news. Covering New Bedford, Fall River, and Dartmouth. This is WLNE News.
3: And good evening, everyone. I'm Pamela Watts, and here's what's happening on this Sunday night.
7: By the next year, she was an anchor and reporter at WLNE Channel 6 in Providence. An American
3: warship is hit in the Persian Gulf. Good evening, I'm Pamela Watts.
7: It was the beginning of a 15-year run at the station, Pamela launched Channel 6's morning newscast. She also helped create the station's 6 Live at 5 broadcast. And she became known for her one-on-one interviews with the day's newsmakers. Her skills soon earned her the anchor chair of the station's main newscasts at 6 and 11 p.m. and she was awarded the Emmy for the best anchor in New England, twice. It was more than her journalism that brought her the praise of her colleagues. In a business known for sharp elbows, yes, Pam really was that nice. But all those years at Channel 6 were just the beginning. From Eyewitness News, this is High Speed News on WPRI.com. The next chapter brought her to WPRI-TV Channel 12 in Providence, where she anchored the morning and noon newscasts. And more one on one interviews.
3: It's been noted that political pundits and commentators and comics have been a lot tougher on you than they've been on your (laughs) opponent. That has got to sting on a personal level. How do you deal with that?
7: Pamela's warmth came through the camera and, of course, her flawless professionalism.
3: Hello, I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Mark (laughs) Zinni. Hello, I'm Pamela Watts.
4: (laughs) I can't do it now, I can't. I hear
3: you just before we start to go (laughs) like this.
7: Pamela went on to launch Rhode Island's first national public radio station, the last state in the country to get its own affiliate. And throughout her career, she's used her platform on behalf of local charities, helping to raise millions for worthy causes. Today, Pamela is co-anchor and correspondent for Rhode Island PBS Weekly on WSBE-TV in Providence, a magazine show with long-form storytelling. Um, threatened me. And-
4: I didn't Did total- you get death threats?
7: Yeah, there were death threats. Things of like people saying he needs to be brought to justice.
3: How old were you when you first realized I'm not a girl? Probably around four years old.
7: With Rhode Island PBS, Pamela's career has come full circle. She began in Rhode Island and continues in Rhode Island. And now she's welcomed to the Emmy's Silver Circle. It's recognition of Pamela's natural news instincts, charm, and goodness under pressure, and always, always, professionalism.
3: Hello, I'm Pamela Watts. (laughs) I can't can't do it. I don't think I can do it.
5: I'll
4: do it (laughs) alone.
5: I tried,
4: I tried that time, I swear. I can't. That was such a beautiful video. (laughs) Pamela, congratulations. You are extremely deserving of that recognition. I appreciate it. And I love seeing your different hairstyles over the years. Oh, yeah. All about the hair. Very cool. (laughs) And our thanks to Scott James and Maria Saracen for producing that video and to Ken Bell for narrating it. And
3: thank you, Michelle. Thank you to all of our team here at Rhode Island PBS Weekly and onward to the next chapter in our story. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And
4: I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly, or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you and good night.